I was recently watching the news and there was a a feature story, an interview with Congressman John Lewis. Um, For those of you who are Americans of of a certain age, you may know this name as a familiar one. But for those of you who are younger, um, from other parts of the world, I can clarify who this person is and why he's significant. So Congressman Lewis is an African-American man. I think he's probably uh, in his 70s at this point. And he, as a young man in the 1960s, was a leader in the civil rights movement in the United States that sought to break down the barriers of racial discrimination here. So there was a time in the United States uh, within my lifetime and the lifetime of many people in this room where in certain parts of the country the law was such that you uh, needed to keep black and white people separate So there were like separate uh, places you would sit in movie theaters, there were separate schools, there were separate uh, um, drinking fountains, there were restaurants you couldn't eat in and hotels you couldn't stay at if you were African American. So this was the law. In certain ways it was like uh, apartheid in South Africa. Not exactly the same, but it had similar features. And in the 1960s, John Lewis and many other uh, African-American people built upon a previous uh, legacy of resistance to these kinds of conditions and started to basically, using some of the techniques that Gandhi and others developed in the struggle in India for liberation, started to just break these laws. They would, just, he, they would just say, as a moral matter, I'm not going to observe this segregation. So there would be things like going into um, places where uh, African-American people were prohibited from going and then just waiting until the police came and arrested them. So that this was massive, eventually became massive, largely nonviolent resistance to this law and these conditions. And these conditions were ultimately uh, brought to an end by federal law that, that banned this way uh, of enforcing or attempting to enforce the inferiority of uh, part of the American community. But John Lewis was a real leader in this as a young man. And in this uh, feature that was part of the news, he was in in some environment with some sort of exhibit. I don't, and I'm not, I didn't catch the part about where this exhibit actually was, but it was a replica of a lunch counter similar to the lunch counters where he and others would sit in Uh, places that the law said they had no right to be. And they would go and sit, and then uh, often patrons uh, who were legally allowed to be there would get aggressive towards them and start insulting them. And 
attacking them and dumping things on them and pushing them and hitting them and stuff. And then the police would come and take them away, put them in jail. And as John Lewis was there, they, they played like some tapes from the time and they played news reports from the time and they uh, showed films from the, uh, the time of actually uh, these kinds of things happening, things that he was part of. And you could see as he was there that he remembered it all and he said the memories were coming back to him very vividly what it was like to be there and to be the object of this kind of restriction and abuse. And you could see that he was still affected by this. It's not as if this was completely gone from his psyche. There was a remembering, there was an understanding. But you could see something else there too that even though this brought up deep emotion in him, he was actually not overcome. That there was a kind of presence and uh, poise there and he was able to talk about <clears throat> these experiences and what had happened. So his mind was not closing around the kind of suffering that he was remembering. So although he was sensitive and vulnerable in a certain kind of way he was free he was connected to but not bound by the past because he had done the work of forgiveness. And imagine what it would be like if there was actually no way, no possibility to be discontinuous with past errors, or harm. You know, you consider some circumstances, the Hatfields and the McCoys, or the uh, gang shootings in um, Chicago, or the, the, the feuds between groups in the Balkans. You know, cycles where error just leads inexorably to more error, one harm leading to a kind of repetition or retaliation. With these things going on and on, with no way to stop it, no way to rectify it, and no way to clean it up. So in these cases, once the harm or damage is done, it just kind of resonates, lasting far into the future until some kind of half-life zeroes it out. If there's no other way, it just echoes and it feeds upon itself. So this forgiveness, this idea of forgiveness, this task of forgiveness, this activity, undertaking of forgiveness, is really important because it helps us cut through this form of repeating suffering traceable to a specific thing. It allows for other options. So I want to offer my definition of what forgiveness actually is because this is one of those words that often is used and everybody thinks 
we're talking about the same thing, but actually we're not. We're talking about a lot of way different things. But I'll give you my definition of it. So, I think that forgiveness is the process, emphasis process, of developing a skillful, unstuck relationship to past harmful actions of ourselves or others. And that it involves choosing the intention to forgive. So there's choice, there's intention in order to end a suffering relationship to the story, to the people involved, and to current arisings which relate to it. So it's a way of disengaging from continued harm and from entanglement with suffering. So what does it mean to actually consider the process of forgiving? You know, I said earlier there are a lot of different associations with this word, and I'm going to smoke some of them out for you right now because th- this may be part of your own subconscious association or perhaps conscious association with the term. So some people hear forgiveness as accepting and letting go or regret, remorse, guilt, shame, or resistance, anger, withdrawal, rage, fear, judgment, condemnation, freedom, peace, acceptance, renewal, reconciliation, or duty, obligation, putting on a false face, denial, Now you go tell your sister you're sorry. Yeah, you're not sorry. (laughs) Liberation, detachment, release. Letting somebody get away with it. Papering it over. So some of these, from uh, my perspective, have some resonance of truth in them, but some of them are really... uh, misleading associations. So let's talk about why you would want to practice forgiveness. Why? The why. Because the why can help form the willingness to form the intention to work with the process. So reason number one, there is suffering in life. You may have heard that before, especially in Buddhist circles. There is suffering in life. Sometimes we create it. Sometimes it's inflicted upon us. Sometimes both things are true. So the suffering is there. Sometimes we're directly responsible for our own or others' suffering. Sometimes suffering just happens in the operation of life. Life involves dukkha. There's a certain kind of way, actually, that we would be wise to forgive 
reality for being the way that it is. Because <laughs> it's not necessarily to our liking this conditionality that has such features as old age, sickness, and death. Separation from what is loved and um, the rest of it. So it's an interesting thing about suffering because our systems are geared to notice it and to try to avoid it. This is part of our survival mechanism. So it's a very paradoxical thing that the way we sometimes respond to injury or to suffering is to never let ourselves forget it and in a certain kind of way to keep it alive. These things that have happened in the past that are uh, still have resonance in the present. And there are reasons for this. There are biological reasons for this. So we know, for instance, that difficult memories are stored uh, uh, in a different way from non-traumatic ones. So these kinds of memories of things that have happened are stored with lots of alarms and flashing red lights that tell the uh, heart-mind body to watch out and to take care because it could happen again. So the effect of this is that there can be a kind of easily startled, easily revived fear, anger, fear response to anything that even remotely uh, resembles the original event where harm was caused, where startle was caused. So it's almost like the whole system says, now don't, don't forget don't forget, you better hold on here. You better be prepared. You know, it could happen at any moment. You know, you should be wary. You should be on the lookout. And yet, this, this biological trick, while it's functional in some ways, also means that there's a lot of uh, suffering that happens that actually isn't pertinent, if you want to put it that way, isn't actually part of immediate threat or likely reoccurrence. So this, this biological uh, feature that helps keep us alive also helps keep our past suffering alive. And keeping past suffering alive to prevent future suffering is a suffering in and of itself. So how can we break the hold of suffering and our attachment to it and open the mind to the possibility of freedom, of living in the present with wisdom and letting the past take its place as the past? And the answer to this is the practice of forgiveness. And you can see the wisdom in this, right? Because unskillful actions, whether they're our own or somebody else's, or both, can create a kind of cul-de-sac where we're locked into an unwholesome relationship with the present suffering caused by those events or deeds. And this is a kind of uh, unskillful fusion to the very source of the suffering, whether it's a person or an event or an action. The mind, heart-mind becomes kind of welded to this particular thing. 
So there needs to be some way to break loose from this round and round of dukkha, which sometimes can be so so strong that it challenges our understanding of the impermanence of all things. So without the capacity to move forward, to have uh, the ability to let go and let things change, we can actually be uh, bonded or bound to our most painful experiences and closed around them. So the Buddha says in the Dhammapada, uh, there's a section translated in English as choices. So um, the Buddha says, uh, when one reflects, look at how he abused me and beat me, how how he threw me down and robbed me. Live with such thoughts and you live in hate. In other words, you're carrying something with you that continues on past the actual event. The event happened. The event ended. Except in your heart-mind, something related to it is still going on. And the way it's going on is dukkha. So forgiveness is the way out, the way to begin again to unstick what has uh, adhered to suffering and judgment, to thaw what's been frozen, and begin to let things move again, to release opening choices and options and other things other than being chained to a cycle of reactivity to past experience. So an important thing to know about this is that it's actually a process. It's a process. So it's not an act of will, although the intention to forgive is essential to the beginning of the process. So it's not just an act of will. I mean, and how many of us have had the experience of you know, having these phony, bony uh, forgiveness experiences too? I forgive you, I forgive you. I forgive you, like hell I forgive you, but I forgive you, oh problem, I forgive you. Yeah, not really. So, it's not, a, it's not just an act of will. So the intention to forgive is part of a decision, a choice coming from wisdom, And the decision is to no longer attach to the painful present results of the unskillful actions of ourselves or others. So this becomes more possible when we understand that's in our interest to let go, to no longer insist on ignoring a truth or telling ourselves a story in a way which causes so much suffering. So there's a big piece around timing should one undertake such a process. Timing is important. So we have to be ready for the undertaking. Meaning there has to be enough stability of heart and mind and enough safety, literal and felt, to undertake this often challenging practice. So sometimes it's actually premature to consider forgiveness. You know, sometimes we're still in, involved with the original injury. We're still bleeding in a 
literal or figurative way. And when that's the case, we certainly need to care for ourselves, tend to ourselves, restore our own well-being and safety first. That's because that's the platform. Physical safety and enough sense of immediate emotional safety. So, you know, often we begin this kind of process in a very gradual way. Not with immersion forgiveness, but we look at and see, well, what kind of willingness is there? Let me see how I can form the initial intention to move the heart-mind in this way. So we could begin, for instance, by entertaining the possibility that we might at some point consider maybe forgiving. So this is a first step, but it's a very big step. Right? So we're not saying, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive myself, I forgive you. We're saying, well, if there's still a lot of pushback from the system, we're saying, well, I can see the wisdom of this. I can see maybe at some point that this, this would be good. So maybe I, I, I will consider it at some point. I'll entertain the possibility that this would be within a range of something I would be willing to experiment with to try. <laughs> right. And so a way of kind of getting around the system's reaction often when this is, this is brought up as a possibility where the whole system kind of goes, hell no! Hell no! Forgive! Hell no! So gradualism can be very skillful. So there's another piece here about uh, acknowledging error wisely. So forgiveness doesn't mean denial and it doesn't mean papering everything over and I don't mind. I don't mind. You've been sleeping on the couch for three years, but I don't mind. (laughs) It's like there's something else going on when it's like that, right? The the words that are being spoken are not, not the truth of the heart. So it doesn't mean denial and it doesn't mean the uh, we minimize the damage done or blur accountability. And in fact, uh, quite to the contrary. So in many cases, as we see upon closer examination, the harm was actually done when basic sila or non-harming was forgotten or ignored. And then came forward the unskillful actions of body, speech, and mind that caused damage. So the precepts are often spoken of as being a protection uh, for ourselves and a protection for for others. Kind of like, well, you know, you 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 know, you've got some foundation there. If if you're not doing uh, these five things, you know, you've got some guardrails there. But sometimes we forget, or others forget. And then there, there comes forward actions out of delusion or other afflictive states. And oh. So, you know, we're clear about responsibility 
acknowledging what we've done in ignorance and or what somebody else has done. So it's important to not let harm go unexamined because it's through the examination of harm that we can actually figure out, well, what were the unskillful actions uh, that arose in the first place? You know, what were the causes and conditions that led to the wrong action? What, what went into that? You know, at what point did it kind of go off the rails? What, what were the delusions or the uh, calaces? Where did it take this particular turn? So in other words, we bring the power of reflection in order to seek understanding. So there's a, a story uh, in the middle length discourses where the Buddha is giving advice to Rahula, who is his son. And I kind of find this, this particular uh, sutta uh, interesting because my, uh, my own personal uh, filling in of the backstory here in relationship to the what's going on here when the Buddha's son is brought to the Buddha by some of the Buddha's disciples. And the son is young. So he's still a kid, not young, young, but he's... Is that Rahula has been naughty. So there's a backstory. Just the series of things that the Buddha says to him seem to be quite particular, and so I take it as a kind of pointing to likely previous uh, behavioral issues. But you might imagine what it would be like to be the son of a, the Buddha. <laughs> Some way you could say it's probably the karmic jackpot, but you know, I I would think you know, talk about being a preacher's kid. I mean, it's like a whole other a whole other level of psychological complexity, one would guess. So anyway, so they, they bring uh, Rahula to the Buddha, and he, he tells them that um, in order to purify thought and action, you need to recognize and admit mistakes. So if you've messed up, that it's important to recognize and admit it. And um, And... Interestingly, he tells them, him to acknowledge the unwholesome action to his teacher to open it, to open it, to actually disclose it, and then to undertake restraint for the future. In other words, don't, don't, don't cover up your mess. Bring it forward into uh, the light. Acknowledge it. Uh, acknowledge it. On the topic of remorse and remedy, you can see that with unskillful actions, it can be really useful to identify what we did in particular that was unskillful. And by opening to the harm that was actually created or the harm that resulted, we can allow ourselves to feel why we wouldn't want to do something like that again. So we can feel remorse and resolve with a sincere heart not to repeat the error. So 
we can renew our commitment to non-harming by recognizing how damaging behavior can be when it falls away from the precepts and falls away from um, being appropriate, responsive, and sensitive to the situation. So sometimes, of course, if we're resolving not to do it again, there's some things that may need to be in place. For example, if one has caused harm through the use of drugs or alcohol, that would be something to look at, to consider the skillfulness of dealing with that if that's a a pattern in life that's caused suffering for self or other. So what does that mean? Refraining completely from intoxicants? Well, sometimes you need support for that, right? Maybe you need to uh, go to some kind of program or go to a 12-step program or Dharma recovery or something. Not just try to white-knuckle it until the next time the compulsion comes and overtakes you. Or, you know, maybe there's some psycho-emotional wounds or issues or conditioning that keep coming up again and again, and when it comes up, you do things that afterwards you feel really bad about, but at the time, it's really hard to recognize that that's getting ready to happen again and divert. So maybe there's some exploration of that in a psychological sense that would be completely appropriate. So the Dharma is a wonderful uh, system that has many, many tools in it and there's no reason you can't subsidize with other tools that are available, which are used in ways that are congruent to the wisdom teachings of the Buddha. Sometimes people have the idea, well, you know, all I need, all I need is the Dharma and uh, the Dharma's gonna fix everything. Well, the Dharma is a necessary element to the awakening of wisdom and compassion and a huge support in terms of context and uh, capacity for sustained uh, introspection and knowledge of immediate arising experience and understanding of the principles of non-harming and how to work and cultivate with the mind. And other things can be very useful and beneficial as well. So it's not an either-or. So on the topic of amends or restitution, apology and that kind of thing, that's a question of appropriateness. Right? So sometimes if you know, you've caused harm to somebody else, they may welcome that kind of acknowledgement and apology. In some cases, they might be, you might be like the last person they ever want to see again, right? 
So this is a wisdom question about the totality of, of the circumstances. Whether to offer or receive uh, an apology, uh, to connect or not reconnect, to acknowledge an apology, to just not respond to the Facebook <laughs> message, right? These are all these are all wisdom questions. But the point is, we want to release the tie that we have to others or to a situation that has the nature of hatred, fear, resentment, guilt, or shame. And I want to talk a little bit about the discernment of wholesome from unwholesome or skillful from unskillful, seemingly similar states and motivation. So there's a way that we can take responsibility for our actions or hold uh, somebody else accountable or attempt to hold somebody else accountable for their actions, which is not uh, skillful. And that is when we use our moral failings or someone else's as proof positive that we or they are bad and worthless human beings, right? This is, you might want to call the evidence-based <laughs> uh, way of approaching these situations where we're always kind of like gathering uh, the dirt on ourselves to reinforce a particular negative self-view. But, you know, this really isn't skillful. And in a certain kind of uh, way, it's negatively self-centered. Because instead of becoming clear about the behaviors we need to change and taking responsibility for doing so, we collapse into a state of reverse narcissism where we're kind of making it all about us. Right? All about us. So, shame and guilt... These are human states. You may have felt them yourself even today, <laughs> perhaps many times today. But they're suffering states. Can we agree that these are suffering states when they're present? And so to undercut, to relate to them in unwholesome ways undercuts the real work, the work that needs to be done to actually liberate the mind and actually avoid future suffering. So getting caught in guilt and shame actually disempowers the mind because the mind starts to lose confidence in its uh, potential to evolve towards greater wisdom. It's like you're feeding yourself, you know, pellets of, uh, you're seeding a future sense of incompetence to do anything different. So it's not a good menu. So say we get to the point in this process where we're open to the truth of what continued present suffering there may be. So we've, you know, done work to, to forgive, but, you know, stuff still comes up. You know, there was stuff coming up for John Lewis when he was 
listening to those film clips and seeing those images again, you could tell, you know, there was still emotional resonance in the system. So even after doing this work, there may still be continued arising of states like anger, sadness, fear, remorse, guilt. But can we learn to work with those with love instead of the mind closing around them or identifying with them? So consider the image of space junk. Say you have two comets collide, right? Two lives collide. There's the impact. There's the the big explosion, right? And then afterwards, there's like the particle belt. (laughs) You may go back through the particle belt many times, right? It may become familiar territory to you. Oh, this memory, this feeling, this thought this set of body sensations. So it may be still orbiting, but the initial collision is over. So can there be skill in working with what continues to arise? With the mind gradually over time decreasing its reactivity to this material and cutting through its identification with it. So we commit ourselves to work with these difficult states in a way that actually serves our liberation. And here again, you know, this is an area where there may be useful additional support. You know, if, if you know, for instance, that there's, there's trauma in the body and in the mind, and you suffer in that kind of way, you know, there's some great body-based uh, methodologies now that can really help reset and rebalance so the mind is not so easily hijacked. Things like somatic experiencing can help the body and the mind let go. So there is a place for remembering in all of this as well. Because There's a place for remembering and memory is part of the process. So can we remember with discernment and not adhere to suffering? You know, wisdom is gained when we actually learn from experience, whether this is individual experience or this is collective experience. And it's actually important to remember. You know, I... I remember with the, the great tsunami that hit uh, Japan a number of years ago, I can remember part of the coverage of that story was along the lines of how high the waves came up and how people had built down, you know, very close to the ocean, how they had built down very close to the ocean. But when people were reporting the story, one of the things that they actually talked about was how previous generations, like hundreds of years previously, had gone to great trouble to set up these stone markers well up into the surrounding hills that said something like, it can come up this high, don't build below here. 
right? Don't build down there because when the waves come, they can come like all the way up here. You know, and there are obviously great historical tragedies again, right? You know, we talk, of course, about the Holocaust in Europe and never forget. You know, the, the role of slavery in the, the creation of uh, the United States and other parts of the Americas. These are things that still have current resonance in the national body politic as well as in our individual psyches and uh, hearts and minds. So it's, imp it's important to remember because if, if we don't remember, we don't learn, right? We don't carry anything forward without some kind of process of, of examination and discernment about what, what's, import what's the important takeaway from this or takeaways. So what are the lessons learned? You know, what do we uh, need to remember so forgiveness alone is sometimes not enough for these collective woundings that still resonate. So collective uh, learning which seeks justice is, is required in the action that backs it up. But when we tell these stories, when we tell these stories, whether they're family stories, you know, what happened in our family, what happened to our group of people, what's happening to our group of people, you know, what's happening to ourselves? Can we tell the story, can, but can we tell it with love? You know, there, it is true, there is multi-generational trauma. Right? There's historical <clears throat> harm and revenge cycles. There's the ways that whole communities have been affected on the epigenetic level by things that have happened. But to, to change the rules or change the pattern which has allowed these things to manifest means that we need to get over our conditioned tendency towards a kind of unskillful, blind response. And this is really uh, key to the unbinding of all of us on the community level as well as the family level. So you know when one person in a family system starts to get healthy or sane or wise, there can be a ripple effect through all of it. A ripple effect forward for future generations as well by people undertaking this, this work themselves individually. You start to be able to model a different way to do it. Where it's not about payback, <coughs> it's not about collapse, it's not about being driven into unskillfulness, it's not about going unconscious. There's some kind of presence, there's some kind of equipoise that opens up the potential for freedom in the individual as well as in the group. 
But there needs to be way showers to model that. So, yeah. There needs to be people that have learned how to do it themselves. Then others will see it. They will know there are other possibilities other than just being driven. Driven by conditioning. Driven by past harm. So just to to close, we can let our mind rest in these truths. All beings have the potential to purify their minds. And this potential cannot be lost no matter how many obscurations there may be. So we don't lose this potential by our own unskillful actions, nor do others. So there's always seed potential there. All beings are heirs to their karma. We and they are always planting seeds that will arise in our mind streams and in our lives. It's in our interest to plant the seeds of our own happiness and well-being. To not be bound. All beings, unless fully awakened, cause suffering to themselves and others through their ignorance and the actions flowing from it. It's not just that we've caused harm or others have caused harm to us. It's that this goes on all the time. Sometimes deliberately, a lot of times from ignorance. The past is gone. All things are impermanent. A bell once rung cannot be unrung. However, we may deal with its echo in the present in a way that minimizes the suffering of ourselves and others. Aversion is unpleasant and painful. To live in hatred and resentment is to forego our own happiness. Letting go is true peace. So the Buddha says in the Dhammapada, look at how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. Abandon such thoughts and live in love. And I think tomorrow, for those of you who are interested in in undertaking it, I'll post on the uh, bulletin board a format for uh, forgiveness practice. If the mind feels like it's steady, and if it has metta, um, and what has been spoken of tonight resonates with you and your system is up for uh, doing an initial exploration, you could do some work with it. Maybe, possibly, if you would consider, perhaps, someday, experimenting.
And now having spoken the the Dhamma as it comes through this mind and having opened to the Dhamma as it comes through these minds, we can together do the reflections on the sharing of blessings.